welcome to the First Lutheran Church located at 512 South Kale Avenue in Miles City with pastoral services provided by Pastor Steve Rice. The Holy Gospel according to John, the 17th chapter. Jesus prayed, I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, for the words that you gave to me I have given to them. And they have received them and know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am asking on their behalf. I'm not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you gave me because they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them, and now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them in your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them was lost, except the one destined to be lost, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and I speak these things in the world, so that they may have my joy made complete in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them, because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from the evil one. They do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, So I have sent them into the world, and for their sakes I sanctify myself, so that they also may be sanctified in truth. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. Um, The high priestly prayer that you just heard a portion uh, of from John's Gospel, the high priestly prayer uh, makes more sense if you understand that it is in the context of ascension, the ascension of our Lord uh, to uh, to return uh, to the Father, and this being the prayer offered in anticipation of that ascension day. Then uh, was uh, last week, and so it kind of came and went quietly uh, on the calendar of the church. But uh, Jesus ascended, uh, that spatial description uh, being the one used in Scripture to, as I have sometimes suggested, uh, is, is, is even more rich in terms of implication. Jesus did not simply or merely ascend.
ascend to an altitude, but rather he went back into time, uh, time that uh, allows him, as we concluded last week, to move about, to be present always, past in this moment with us now and in our future whenever and wherever that can be. Uh, he has the ability to be present for he's Lord of time, not limited by time as are we. So the ascension came and went. Uh, the church is what would soon be left. And in anticipation of that, Jesus prayed, Holy Father, protect them in your name so that they may be one. So they may be one. These words, again, part of the prayer uh, that Jesus offered for his family of disciples. Jesus prayed that those gathered, those who would gather in his name, might be one even amidst their substantial differences. There are differences within the body of disciples. There are differences among us and certainly vast differences around the world to which the gospel was and is taken. Differences that would only magnify over time. Jesus did not pray that they be all alike, but he did pray that they be one. I'm not asking you, he prayed, to take them out of the world. The disciples and so the church was meant to be in life's fray, meant to be in the highways, the byways, the hustle, the bustle of life. But they would be different. They would be different. Christ's church would be would neither was neither to be uh, a cloistered bunch of hermits, a little sect that stayed off to itself. Nor was the church meant to become the vanguard for advocating every wind of social change that would take place across cultures, time, place. Okay. The phrase has, has long served the church well. The church was meant to be in the world, but not of the world. We were meant to be different. Okay, We were meant to be, if you will, by many standards of measurement, odd. <laughs> this morning at the chapel uh, over at the VA, uh, Dave and Jan Pratt were there this morning to worship early. And as we were walking out after the sermon, and uh, Jan said to me, and I think Blaine, you and she had talked about this, she observed that in some of the things that she was reading, uh, that the church has moved over time, or at least in our particular venue here, the church has moved from a theology, and if I caught her words correctly, for she offered him as we were walking down the sidewalk, the church had moved from a theology of confession and forgiveness into a theology of affirmation and acceptance. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that's really an interesting, uh, interesting change uh, over 20 centuries from a theology of confession and forgiveness to a theology of affirmation and acceptance of fill-in-the-blank. God's people, as I say, have always been a bit odd in that way, that they did not fit well within the culture into which they were set. The, God's people have uh, um, been different and differently defined. The church was not created, you see, by a, a political or a civil process, but rather the church was, and we'll celebrate that, created by the genius of God, 
And God reminds us in the Old Testament, my ways are not like your ways, and wisdom not like your wisdom. Okay, so we cannot simply think of God as just a smarter one of us, uh, for that is to bring God down. Nor can we think of ourselves as equals to God, that's to lift ourselves up too high. But rather, we are here because God wills it. The church exists because God wills it, not any entity of human origin. From the time of the setting apart of the Hebrews in the Old Testament to the giving of the law of Moses and the Ten Commandments, God's people simply were expected to behave and act differently than the culture that surrounded them. To the indignation of the Roman Empire, Christians were insistent upon observing biblically derived morality that very, very often conflicted with prevailing social customs and the uh, more base parts of human nature. It was upon such foundational moral principles that this country itself came into being. That's just undeniable to any objective reader of Western, the history of Western civilization. Okay? We were founded upon Judeo-Christian principles, and until very recent times, um, we, we symbolized that by the placing of Ten Commandments at our courthouses and in various public places as a way of saying this is how we started. This is where we be, the beginnings was the genesis of our system of law and ordering society. Of course, that still exists above the Supreme Court, uh, the heads of the justices of the Supreme Court, but it has been removed. The commandments have been removed from all other venues of public nature. Okay? Even during the tumultuous times of the Roman Empire, under some of the most brutal of Caesars, For example, when St. Valentine was condemned to death for marrying, according to the Judeo-Christian practice of marrying a man and a woman. Okay, St. Valentine. You you know Valentine's Day, February 14th, uh, but that day uh, really has been co-opted. The name of one of our saints, the early saints of the church, turned into some flying Roman minor deity, a Cupid. Uh, Valentine was a Christian in about 400, the year 400. And at that time, the emperor decided that it would no longer be permissible for young soldiers to be married. Rather, they could enjoy every sexual pleasure and excess that that they could have, uh, that they could find but marriage was to be forbidden them because it was thought that a married man with a wife and children would be less audacious when it came to battle and hold back and not be as violent as he could be because he wanted well Self-preservation. He had something, someone to return to. Well, Valentine, the priest, continued to marry young soldiers before they departed and were deployed. And he would marry them to their loves. And uh, he was found out 
And as a result, he was arrested. He was in violation of the civil law. Caesar's will was law, and he was in prison. And during the course of his imprisonment, he witnessed, he was a kind man, he is said to have witnessed uh, to the jailer who held him, to the jailer's family, and particularly, some think he perhaps was even a physician, ministered to, but certainly affected the cure of a blindness that the jailer's child uh, was afflicted with. And on the eve of his execution, uh, he penned a letter to her in uh, exhorting her to remain faithful uh, to the Lord in which she had come to believe, and he signed off from your valentine. He was executed on February 14th, uh, the day that the pagans believed that the birds paired for mating in the spring, but it came to be then a day of significance for the early Christian church, Valentine the Martyr. As I say, well, we've done some pretty awkward things to that story, but it is one that does, in fact, belong to us. So Christians, even in those early centuries, were known for a certain particular kind of uh, modest morality. And, in fact, it attracted Roman soldiers to the faith. Okay, they could see uh, that they were the ones who bled and died, carrying out the will of those in the Senate uh, and the emperor who was bizarre in their appetites, shall we say. Christians observed morality derived from Holy Scripture. We did not we're not defined by morality established by any prevailing, ever-changing set of social conventions. For much of 20 centuries, biblical life guidance was both evident and largely unquestioned uh, in Western civilization once Europe became a largely Christian uh, continent. But now Christians find themselves in a different climate, in a holy set of different set of circumstances, and in some ways I would submit eerily similar to Rome. And so it becomes incumbent upon the church then to ask itself again, ask itself again, what shall we do? How shall we live? The church now finds itself in a new age of persecution. And here I'm not speaking of the obvious stuff, like the burning of churches uh, in Africa, uh, the martyrdom of whole communities of religious faith in the Middle East that have existed back to the time of Christ at the hands of radical Islam. But the church has to ask itself, how shall we live? What shall we do? It is a time of this new persecution, but in our experience of it, again, not the burnings as in Africa or the annihilation of communities such as in the Middle East, our persecution falls more under what I call the co-opting of the faith, co-opting of the faith. Increasingly, the things of others are being demanded to be surrendered to social warrior legions who march in the name of some higher good, such as fairness or equality or atoning for past wrongs. Okay? Co-opting. Co-opting. I've, I've seen it. I've lived long enough now to watch it. 
Co-opting has become, I submit to you, the new form of colonizing people. Okay? The colonizing of traditional Judeo-Christian values and institutions in both society and in the church. There now exists not so much a desire to create something new among the colonizers, the co-opters. They're not trying to establish and create something new so much as they are trying to take what has been established and own it in this new form of colonization from within, often from within. Now, there are parallels, I would suggest, to political colonizations of the past. You know, we talk about the Europeans traveling across the ocean to come here and the, uh, the struggles that ensued following in that. But there are parallels to that in the modern uh, co-opting colonization. You see, the more powerful armies arrive and they see something they want and they take it. And they often take it from either the weaker or the more trusting or even the naive. You know, in an act of irony, consider how fashionable it has become in the past decades to protest Columbus Day in recent years. And who protests it but the 21st century colonizers? (laughs) 21st century co-opters. They don't seek territory, but they seek to own your customs and your traditions and your church. The new colonizers are demanding that the definition of what is moral and what is ethical be surrendered to them. And they colonize the places that do surrender. But you see, if you think about it, such a surrender, before you make it, such a surrender is going to beg this ultimate question. Who or what will become the new decider of what is right and wrong? And so it is this past week. I suspect some of you did as I did, found yourself watching part of or portions or excerpts from confirmation hearings took place in Washington, D.C. Confirmation hearings for the nominee to become the next director of the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, She is a long-tenured veteran of that agency, been in harm's way more than a few times. Um, That agency that grew out of the OSS of World War II, gathering uh, intelligence to protect this political land that we share. As I listened, though, as I listened to the questions and the answers back in the fourth, the interrogation, and it was much more of an interrogation than a Q&A, the interrogation of the nominee did not center upon objective qualities, such as, I say, her long tenure, her competence, or even so much on political uh, policy questions, as I had expected, but it turned a rather interesting corner and veered into questions of morality. Do you think you're moral enough to lead the CIA? Well, this is a curious thing, I thought. 
the, uh, the Congress, the Senate, a body with a nationwide collective approval rating of 15% is about to question someone about their morality. On behalf of the 85% who largely think them, among other things, themselves immoral. What an unvarnished display of virtue signaling <laughs> was going on. Oh boy, the cameras rolled. Virtue signaling, are you moral enough? We have to ask you questions of morality. By what authority, I wondered. I would have preferred that I hear them stick to matters and questions of law, objective questions, not morality, for they are not the arbiters or the definers of morality, particularly them. What self-righteousness was, was palpable? So what ensued then was not really a discussion about morality at all. So I listened on. It was an inquiry into all things politic. It was all for the cameras. Suddenly it occurred to me that something new was being laid claim to. Politicians were, before my eyes, in the very process of co-opting morality. They would be the arbiters of what was moral and not moral, whether the candidate, whether she was moral or not moral enough. Politicians were becoming the arbiters of morality, and I shuddered at that thought. For the recasting of good and bad, what is good, what is bad, by the political class, conveyed echoes from some of humanity's darkest periods. Okay? It was Orwellian in the prospect for the future. You know, the question's always asked, what constituted a good Nazi? That thought, when it occurred to me, doubly saddened me, for I know my own denomination, our denomination, has been at the vanguard of redefining morality and ethics away from traditional Judeo-Christian foundational principles that had made us different for a very long time millennia of time and making us look ever more like the culture in which we live. And so let's take a moment then in the moments we have left to review and remind ourselves what is meant by two, two terms now under siege or continue to be under siege by the co-opters, the new colonizers, Morality. Morality. It's never been legislatively defined. It can't be legislatively defined. Even the foundational documents of this country defy that, uh, uh, refute that. Congress simply cannot pass morality law. They can codify the law or morality into law. Perhaps they can do that, but they can't establish it. Morality is derived from natural law. Okay, natural law, from those things self-evident and endowed by the Creator. Or if you're secular, if you are beyond the church and you even hold no religious views at all whatsoever, they, they, they are things encoded deep within human nature. There's certain things that we as human beings recoil against. Okay? Harming children. 
we recoil against the unjust taking of life. These things are not a matter of law. They're far deeper than that. The law might recognize it, but the law doesn't create it. Nature and nature's God is the source of our morality. Wind back the clock to the Ten Commandments. <laughs> Remember when we used to be able to see them at our courthouses as a reminder of that? Morality, however, does remain vulnerable, and we're seeing strong indications of that. Morality is always vulnerable to any community where community is confused, where community is divided. Should community be destroyed, so too will its sense of morality be violated. In such a fog of ensuing confusion, morality itself would be up for grabs. Taken further, if community, whether now the community of the disciples, the community of the Jews before them, the church, or any other community, when you destroy the community, morality becomes a rather moot point, empty question. Because right or wrong, right or wrong, of fundamental concern to morality, right, what's right, what's wrong, is supplanted by opportunity and by the power to punish which the state holds, the government holds, in exquisite, singular fashion. Break the law, we'll punish you. All right? So with the breakdown of morality, what rises as the source of your rights? But the government, those people that I saw on TV, questioning someone about their morality. That said, and related to morality is the term often wrongly used interchangeably, okay, ethics, ethics. Morality and ethics. We kind of get them fuzzed up together. Ethics describes good and bad actions. Okay, you do something. Is what you did ethical or unethical? It goes beyond morality within the moral framework of right and wrong. Ethics are meant to be guides to action, guides to action, based upon what is understood as morally right or wrong. Within a community, when morality is understood, certain acts are ethically then right or wrong and can be judged as so. So as I was writing this down, as I was sitting at the computer, news flashes across that crawler, I think they call them crawlers at the bottom of the screen, didn't make much out of it, wasn't too, wasn't too spectacular, but a shooting in a school outside Los Angeles. Uh, shame to say that's, you know, it, it wasn't spectacular enough. There was not enough drama. Uh, but at the time, no one knew that, and so I, you could see it. Shooting at school in Los Angeles. And I saw it, and I thought to myself, well, I wonder if the shooting was right or wrong. Sadly, the answer, I concluded, depended upon what community I happened to be in when I asked the question. What community? Because if the shooting was for revenge, for disrespect, or something like that, you know, or if it was born out of gang violence, you know, Crips and Bloods, Red and Blue, stuff like that. Uh, gangs, by the way, are the new community spawned from the out-of-date family institutions of the past. Uh, 
was the shooting born of some unrelated mental illness? You know, I, I knew time was only going to tell the answer to that, but I knew that uh, within certain communities, we used to call them subcultures, but I learned after the uh, uh, Facebook uh, uh, testimony before Congress that we have communities that have experiences. Yeah. Um, we used to call them subcultures, but within certain subcultures, that community, I mean, that shooting might well have actually been, well, yeah, that's a moral thing to do. That's a good thing to do. And so we're confused. We're confused. What do we know? What we do know is that the co-opters, the co-opters, the 21st century colonizers, are taking apart any sense of community that once prevailed. However, imperfectly, warts and all, among us in Western society. Morality, morality that was once agreed upon, replaced by separate and individual and subcultural codes of conduct, right and wrong. Even the rampant lack of civility that we are exposed to so often in today's uh, uh, culture traces, I think, its, its origins back to this process of... Uh, of individualization. This is not the kind of unity for which Jesus Christ prayed, and therefore it ought not be the kind of unity that we find in the church, or disunity. Jesus prayed that those who called upon his name may be one, may be one, one among their differences, but that they not co-opt his gospel or allow his gospel to be co-opted and the morality into the, into the morality derived from... Uh, any other source than nature and nature's God. In the hot mess that is the 21st century American politics, I pray that communities of faith, the church, we ourselves, individually and together, push back. Wherever we find the co-opters colonizing morality and ethics for some political purpose. For those principles by which Christians govern and regulate their lives must never be derived from any source but God alone. I heard a statement uh, someplace, don't even know where, this past few days. They asked the question, did Rosa Parks need to sit in the front of the bus? The answer is, of course, no, she did not need to. But she had a right to. Okay? And that right was not recognized by law. In fact, it was quite the opposite. But you see, there is something that transcends the law that we create among ourselves. And that is the law of God. The law of God. Jesus recognized that that is the only thing that could keep his church, one. The morality that is derived from our Judeo-Christian traditions is the only thing that will keep the church one. And I see the church fragmenting wherever that is seems to be uh, uh, not taken seriously. Because otherwise, the arbiters of morality will be, well, for the most part, I suggest up for election, right? <laughs> the arbiters of morality will be up for sale because they are up for election, and all too fragile basis upon which to stake life's most important decisions. The public square, once occupied by men and women 
of many kinds and stripes has now been stripped of its moral certainties. Rights once believed derived from God are increasingly now, we are told, derived from the states, from the government. The government would love, Caesar would love to become your God. The glue that held the disciples together is being dissolved. Jesus' prayer is being silenced by those who would hold the important virtues of morality, capture, and for sale to the forces and fortunes of politics, and we must not let it be so. It is not ours to give away. The morality of the Christian church, the church and its morality, is not ours to give away or to permit to be co-opted by a passing political process whether ancient or modern. For we belong to a kingdom that is, as Jesus said, not of this world, but rather a kingdom that is a part of the genius of the God who created heaven and earth. We live in the present moment, but we are not defined by the present moment. As Jan put a point on it as we walked from chapel this morning, we must not move from being a church that centers upon confession and forgiveness as our theology to become a church that is simply about affirmation and acceptance of whatever the world should set before us. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this production of the First Lutheran Church. We welcome you to visit us in person at 512 KL Avenue. You can also find us on Facebook at First Lutheran Church, Miles City, Montana, and email us at flc at midrivers.com.